with Rachel Lee. Today I will be bringing you a very special podcast which was for a question and answer session I attended as part of the Brisbane International Film Festival recently. The film I went to see was Ladies in Black and the question and answer session was with Bruce Berriford who is the director and co-writer and Sue Milligan who is also the co-writer and producer of the film. Kathy Van Extel is the journalist that will be talking to them and Amanda from the Brisbane International Film Committee will be introducing the session. I hope you enjoy. So in addition to being the fabulous director of this film, he is also internationally renowned for Breaker Morant, Mal's Last Dancer, Double Jeopardy and Driving Miss Daisy. He's also known for the beloved Australian classics, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, The Getting of Winston, Don's Party, Puberty Blues, Crimes of the Heart and Black Robe. Sydney-born, Bruce has been making films around the world for more than 50 years and has made 34 features to date. He was nominated for an Academy Award for the script of Breaker Morant and Direction of Tender Mercies and Driving Miss Daisy won the 1990 Academy Award for Best Picture. <laughs> I think that's a good one. We also have sitting beside him the very fabulous Sue Millican, who is one of Australia's most experienced and highly regarded film producers. She has produced four features with Bruce, The Fringe Dwellers, the first official Australian-Canadian production, Black Robe, the World War II survivor film, Paradise Road, with an international cast including Glenn Close and I think starring Kate Blanchett, launching her, as one would say. And obviously, most recently, the very fabulous Ladies in Black, which he co-wrote the screenplay. Joining us and with Bruce and Sue is the wonderful Kathy Van Exler's chair. Kathy is a journalist with more than 25 years of experience in radio reporting, presenting and documentary making. In 2001, she was awarded the Walkley Commendation for ABC coverage of September 11, a terrorist attack. Kathy is formerly Canberra Press Gallery journalist and presenter of Canberra Breakfast Radio, and now Radio National Breakfast. I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you so much. There we go. So, Bruce, it's been a long time coming, decades. Yes, it, it was. Um, I first read the novel in the 1990s, after it was published in England, uh, written by Madeline Sinjin, who'd been at university with me. And um, I brought to Sue's attention and said this would make a great film and I think Sue negotiated an option on it and then I thought well everyone's going to love this book as much as we do and well it'll be sailed through and we'll make it and I, I said to Madeline who was quite ill frail little thing she was I said we'll make this before you die but we didn't because she went and let us down by dying a few years ago um, I think about eight years ago so anyway finally thanks to Sue and um, Alana Zitzerman, the other, the co-producer, they got the film together and we, we made it recently. So why was it so difficult to get up? It's one of those things you just toss around. Nobody wanted it, nobody could see the movie in it that Bruce and I could see it. People said it's such a slight story, nothing happens in the story. There's no um, explosions. No, there's no explosions, there's no action. It's simply people and it, um, I guess it was the times as well. I mean, the government agencies certainly didn't want to help. But we couldn't get distribution either. We had some cast lined up. We had Isabella Rossellini at one stage wanted to do it. Monica Bellucci wanted to do it. Still, we couldn't get anything. And 
I guess it was partly the times as well. Times have moved on. The musical, which was um, Ladies in Black, which was created... That was a two, three, 2015. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. It started in Brisbane. Um, was a hit. That happened. Then there was the rise of the women's movement, the rejuvenation of the women's movement. With, with the Me Too campaign. Yeah, and um, um, immigration issues and stuff. Some, somehow, the water changed, you know, with, with things you can't really explain them half the time. It just got easier. And I must say, then we brought on Alana, who was really a dynamite raising money, which I was a signal failure at in, in, with this film. And so, so between its wall, we were able to kind of get it going. And Bruce, what was it about the story that you felt needed to be told on screen? I was very attracted to the humour of it. I thought that the characters were well drawn. There was an interesting variety. It was often, I thought, very funny. That was one of the problems we had too when we were trying to raise money. People kept telling us, they said, you think it's funny, it's not funny. And I said, I think it's funny. Thought, I've heard it described as a dramedy. It's not really a drama at all. Slightly perhaps, but more of a comedy. But um, I like the uh, positive approach it took to Australia. Madeline wrote the book when she was in England. She left Australia when she was in her early 20s and never came back. And I think she was looking at Australia really with loving eyes, having left the country. And she wrote this book and I thought, it's so nice to make a film which shows Australia in such a positive light, full of wonderful people, which I think is actually true. But you get so many bitter, angry films. I thought, I'd like to make a cheerful film. And this is it. And I like too the theme of the migrants coming and being assimilated, the migrants having to cope with the Australians who are the ones who are already there and the Australians having to adjust to the migrant life. I thought that was a wonderful theme and of course it's still current. And um, I thought she handled it very well with a very light touch, which we also tried to, to do in the film. And um, it was just a lovely piece. I, I think thought. some of the critics though have felt that it might be too light. Well, they're wrong. Around the migrant issue. <laughs> They've all got it wrong. Is that what a, that's a director's prerogative? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, I saw one critic wrote a review and said, what about the migrants who are living out in suburbs working on farms and things? Well, that's another story. This was about these people who were at David Jones and it was a different group. You could make a hundred films about migrant experiences in Australia. It's also, it's a, it's a parable about tolerance, really, and although told in a very sort of simple and, and sometimes dis, um, deceptively simple way. There's simply people that you don't understand, you don't like and you're afraid of, and so you, 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 you don't like them and you hold back from them. And this, the, the film shows that once you get to know people, they're just the same as everybody else, and there's good and bad in all sides. And I think that's the single most important message, if you like, of the film, but it's done in such a way, and hopefully you all feel that, that you walk out thinking, yeah, you know, you've, you've kind of realised something. Now, Sue's right, this was a, a key factor in it, and I thought that that, uh, that whole theme was absolutely crucial. But if that hadn't been there, it would never have made, wouldn't have bothered with it. If it had just been about Just with a series of jokes, we'd never have done it, but thematically it was so interesting. I felt also that it was about what we can actually benefit from our experience with migrants as well. So beyond, you know, that they're good people, that there's actually a contribution that is made to our Oh, our well, culture. that's right. Well, you do see these people all changing. I mean, the girl changes, even the guy who's stuck in the mud father, that, you know, who works in but the prison factory. 
bit of salami, he has a glass of red wine, and at the final scene he says, well, with all these changes, he said, things aren't the same as they were. This is your first Australian film for nearly a decade. I'm wondering, Sue, do you see this as more of an Australian story, or do you see that there is an international resonance to it? Oh, I think, it, I think the themes are universal. It's, it's, it couldn't be more Australian if it tried. But that's the same with all great drama, I think. The, the themes touch everybody. They're all pretty much the same once you drill down a bit. And so I think that's the lovely thing about it, is that it's unapologetically Australian and lovingly Australian, but the themes uh, can be related to by anybody. Is there a plan for international release? Well, we hope so. Sony, Certainly hope so. Yes. Sony, uh, the distributor Sony, have bought the film for the world. It was an unusual... Unusual deal for an Australian film, usually you get a distributor to buy the Australian rights and then you have to find sales agents who will pre-sell or sell off the rest of the world, territory by territory. In this case, Sony took the film for the world. Uh, and so they've got money to get back because they put that money into the film. So we're pretty sure that they'll um, be working together outside Australia, yeah. Bruce, can we talk about the making of the film? How did you go about recreating Sydney circa 1959? Well, we had a very good art department. And they had to do a lot of research and find out where, you know, we had a, a couple of guys who went around Sydney finding parts of the city that looked like 1959. And then we also had to do, of course, I remembered it well, that helped. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yes, that's right. Well, 59 was the year I went to university there. And um, we had um, some of the wide shots, like you see in the city, with the outside of the store were done by a very clever digital team who put a lot of the material, put stuff from 1959 back when I mean, we had the basic building, which Mark Foy's department store, which is now a courtroom. But we used that, we dressed up the windows, and then a lot of things like trams were added digitally. But also, a lot of the tram stuff, we filmed in a tram museum uh, in Cronulla, south of Sydney. Fabulous. And what about the um, printing press, which was a beautiful scene? Oh, that was, we were very lucky. One day I saw in the paper an ad. I didn't know what we were going to do because everything now, it's all digital. They don't use those sort of no. lined big machines anymore. I saw a piece in the paper, an ad for a printing museum in Penrith, outside Sydney. So I got um, Felicity Abbott, the designer. We jumped into the car and drove out. And there was this printing museum with the machines in working order. So, run by a bunch of old guys who'd all worked at the Sydney Morning Herald and were madly cooperative. So we filmed the printing scene there. And what about the internal scenes of the department store? The inside of the department store is superbly designed by Felicity Abbott and filmed at the studio in Sydney. We, we did... The David Jones store had a seventh floor that for some reason or other they'd never restored. And they let us in to the seventh floor for one day which was the first day of the shoot. And we used that as the ground floor. So Felicity had to build a false entrance and a street behind it, because it's meant to, not meant to be up, up in the air. So, but it looked very convincing. She did a brilliant job. Sue, I've got a neighbour who's worked for DJs for 35 years plus, still working there here in Brisbane. Are you getting many people reminiscing about their time with DJs in oh. a department store like that? I think everybody in Australia either worked <laughs> for David Jones at one stage or their mother did or their aunt or somebody. It's been unbelievable the number of people who've, who've come forward and uh, not only love the film, 
but told us their own reminiscences as well. That's a tremendous sort of connection, really. Were you trying to tap into that, that nostalgia? Not really nostalgia, but it was sort of an inevitable byproduct, I suppose. So you've described this as one of Bruce's best films. Why do you think that's the case? What is it about this film? Bruce is a, a rare filmmaker that his, his films always just come together as a cohesion and, a, and as a wonderful piece of cinema. This one, I think, has got it all, really. It's really beautifully directed. The performances are wonderful. And the realisation of the story is as close as you could imagine you want it to be. And it, it just works. We did have well. a... We ended up with a wonderful cast. I mean, they were fabulous. And the young girl, uh, Angari Rice, who's only 16, yeah. did such a polished she, performance. She's up and coming, isn't she? She's, she's going to wow us. Yeah, she's morning, in the she? new... Um, is it? Spider-Man. Spider-Man yeah. film. It's supposed to be a secret. So That'll be the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just, don't, don't let it get around. Just keep it to yourselves. Now, this is the fourth feature film that you've both worked on together. Black Robe, The uh, Fringe, Fringe Dwellers, Road. which I absolutely love. Paradise Road as well. They're very, very different films. Is there any thread that ties these together? Only that they're all character-driven stories, I suppose, about people in different situations. I mean, they're the sort of films really that appeal to me to make. Character studies. They all have a point as well. I mean, they, they all have a point in they say something about the human condition, about a particular moment in time, but something that is important, I think, into our society, as well as hopefully entertaining. With the exception of Black Road, the other films will feature women taking control in a socially constrained environment. <laughs> yes, they do, but I mean, yes, it's an interesting point, really, yeah. <laughs> Am I going too deep here, Bruce? Definitely. <laughs> I haven't thought of that. Well, Black Robe broke the mould. <laughs> it did. It did. You, you mentioned uh, the women's movement earlier, Sue, the Me Too campaign. Bruce, can I ask you about that? I mean, in terms of you, what do you make of it and how it's evolved? Came as a bit of a surprise to me, really. really? Oh, yeah, well, I think and I'm isn't rather naive. Couch famous. I think I'm rather naive. I mean, although you know, I'd made a lot of films in Hollywood, and all these stories came out about what's his name Weinstein. I'd never heard any of them. It was all news to me. Morgan Freeman, who was in Driving Miss oh, Daisy, has more stripes than Speed Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's been described as having a pattern of behaviour. Did you see anything on set? Never. No, he was always an absolute gentleman. Wonderful to work with, very calm and focused, and no, I had no idea. Isn't it, though, a symptom of, of, of this kind of behaviour that you don't see it? They're very, those people who do these sort of things, I think, are very careful to make sure that they're, that they're not seen. And if the women aren't courageous enough to speak out, then it gets untold. Well, Nobody when knows. you say aren't courageous enough, the power balance is, is not there for a minute to speak out. That's the problem. That's why it's it? courageous for them to speak up, I think. So what yeah. do you make of it, Sue? What do you make of this Me Too evolution? Well, it's a, it had to happen, and it's a good thing that it's happened, and it's a good thing that I think that men who are inclined to the, in this way are put on notice. There's always a danger with movements that they go too far. Um, there's a danger of ruining somebody's career Perhaps unfairly, but it's a tricky thing to talk about because you can get yourself into all sorts of trouble. Basically, I think it's a very good thing, and it's high time that, that it's also part of the rise of women, I think, to equality with men in the workplace. And it's in a very important stage that women now have 
the situation where they don't have to put up with this kind of stuff in order to pursue their careers. Do you think it's going to change the way business is done in Hollywood, Bruce? No. I've noticed over the last few years there's a lot more women executives at all the studios. Often all of the executives could be, could be women. That's been the biggest change in the last four or five years. Okay. So let's talk, I mean, we were here to talk about the relationship you two have and the collaborations that you've had. How would you describe your partnership with Bruce, sir? Well, mostly it's a lot of fun, except when I don't get my way. <laughs> It's important, you see, originally I approached Sue to produce, didn't I, um, I must have called Bridge you. Brothers, yeah. Don McAlpine, the cameraman who shot Broken Marine, and a lot of films of mine, called me one day and he said, look, I know you're having producer trouble. He said, I know someone who could produce films for you and you'd get on with and you wouldn't have any kind of organisational problems. And he said, give Sue Millican a call. I never met Sue. So I did, I found her. And I, I don't know, did I tell you Don had told me to call you? No, I don't think so. That was it I anyway. Don't... So then we got together and, and that was how it started. And, and then Sue is a wonderful, has very good in films and is dead honest. You do find sometimes with producers, you can't this will come as a surprise to people, but it, you can't the trust them. I wonder what say about the directors. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of mad directors too. Yeah. But it's been great because, you know, you can be sure that if Sue's organising it, everyone will be taken care of, the film will go smoothly, it'll come in on time, and all that sort of stuff. I think films are enormously complicated because you spend a vast amount of money in a very short period of time, and if nobody's ever done this film before, it's always, while the basic rules are the same, they're always different. And so it's absolutely important that everybody does their job as well as they can. And if everybody does do their job together, then you have... You have a good time as well as working very hard. And yeah, that's yeah. what I found with Bruce. Bruce does Bruce either he does his job brilliantly, but he also communicates very well as well. So you're able to form a partnership where you can actually get the best value out of the money, which is really what you're there to do. You've got X amount of money. To get that money spent the best way you can to make the best film you can. Yeah, and it's you've got to get a good crew together too, which is, you know in Australia there's a lot of wonderful crew, but a lot of cameramen, designers, composers. I mean the Beautiful score for this film done by Chris Gordon. We'd worked with before. He did a Mouse Last Dancer and the uh, the Sydney we Sydney documentary. We did film yeah. on Sydney in the 2000, and Chris did the music. That's that was I another was one we did. Yeah. And is it important for the producer and director to share the same vision? I think it's essential. Oh yes, yes. I mean, if you get a situation where the producer fundamentally wants a different film, you're sunk. This has happened to me in America once or twice where basically they wanted something different to what I was doing. And I don't think they were even sure what it was they wanted. I think it happened to you with an actor, wasn't it, Clint Eastwood? Oh, with Cl Clint. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was terrible. Because I was meant That's to Bridges I was meant to direct uh, Mid Bridges of Madison County, which I worked on for about eight months. But Clint really wanted to direct it. And so he was always polite but just massively uncooperative. And finally I had to go to the studio and I said, look, it's never going to work because he actually doesn't do anything. He just sort of stands there. And I said, you'll have to let him direct it or the film won't happen because he's not going to cooperate with me directly. And that's what they did. He directed it. So is it easier to make a film these days given the technology and I guess the reduced costs or is it harder? Costs aren't reduced, are they? Costs aren't reduced. No, aren't reduced. I mean, it's, they, quite, they haven't really rocketed up in the way that you might expect. And there's been a lot of salaries have stayed much the same and so on. With Australian well, films... Sal salaries have gone down, too. 
You mean you're talking about yourself? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in some ways it's easier. The tax offset which is available for films out does help. Government agencies are very helpful. There's a process in place, but getting closing the gap, which is a, a session I talked to about yesterday, on yesterday, you know, there's always as a last 30%, how do you close the budget, no matter what size the budget is? There always seems to be this gap. So I don't think it's any more difficult, but it's no easier, really. It's always and also, a struggle. I think a lot of people think that because it's digital, it's easier to make it and it's faster. Yes. That's not true. Right. The lighting is just as complicated. The digital cameras have grown so that they're bigger than the old film cameras we used to have. And of course, the worst thing of all is that you can do links to all over the place. So Uncle Tom Cobbley and you know everybody is watching the film as you're shooting it. And often for a director, it drives you mad because they come rushing in and say, could you do so-and-so, so-and-so? Because they're watching it while you're actually shooting and coming in and giving advice. Oh, yes, there was. Um, <clears throat> someone said, so people assumed initially, I think some people did, that we were going to film the musical. But that, I mean, no, I thought the musical was terrific, but I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to do character studies that I really couldn't do with, with all those songs getting in the way. Although <laughs> the song at the end of the film was written for us by Tim Finn, who wrote the musical. We were actually offered the opportunity to make the films by one of the major distributors in Australia, got Alana and I in and said, well, I don't know if you were there. No, I you did tell me. Yeah, and they said, we'd really like to film the musical. And we all said, actually, no, we don't want it. We want to make it. Yeah, see, I actually gave Tim Finn the okay to do the musical because I'm the exec literary executor of Madeline Singer's estate. And Tim called me, this was a few years ago now, having read the novel, and said, oh, well, I'd love to do a musical of it, but I need your okay, because you, you know, you're the executor. And uh, I said, yes, okay, go ahead. Was it difficult adapting the novel to a screenplay? And if so, what was the hardest part? You know, it wasn't that difficult, because if you read the novel, it's written in fairly short scenes. It's not overwritten like a lot of books. You know, a lot of books you have to adapt. They're far too long and the dialogue goes on and on and on. It was written in short takes. It moved well from person to person. And really adapting it, I think it's the closest adaptation to a novel I've ever done. Or we've ever done. It was the only thing we've done together. But it was, um, it is remarkably close. And there's not that much that's added. The only, perhaps the only scene that's added is the one at the very end. The novel ends and they say, we're going to have a party and all get together. And it stops. And I thought, well, we've got to do the party. So we added the party at the very end. And there was a few other little bits and pieces, but someone emailed me today and said, Noni Hazelhurst's wonderful speech about the, um, uh, you know, women and, you know, what girls can do and all this sort of thing. Um, they said, did you write that or did Sue write that? And I said, Madeline Singer wrote it. It's in the book. <laughs> thing was that a lot of the dialogue can come straight from the book and anybody who's read it will recognise it, I'm sure. But she, she just wrote this delightful dialogue that was so easy to transfer. I think the casting is perfect and I think that really makes the movie. Who had the final call on the casting? Is it the director or do you as also directors and producers sort of do an overview on the casting? 
it's the director. <laughs> actually, actually, I found, no, they do, it really is a director. And I found, even in America doing films with a lot of high-powered producers and studios, they almost invariably let me do the casting. They'll interfere in all sorts of things, but very rarely for the casting. Once or twice I've been forced to use... Shut up, sir. Once or twice I've been forced to use an actor here or there that I thought was a mistake. But it's been quite rare. Generally, they let me do it. The director has to have the final say. Yeah. The director has to work with the actors and get the performance. It's no point forcing somebody on a director that they don't want because therein lies disaster. Yes, yeah, so if you, you turn around and... You feel that say you're heading in the right direction. And you, sometimes you can save the director from... Some perhaps mistakes they might have made, you know, in the nick of time. <laughs> it, has, it can happen. Yeah, I mean, if you turn around and say to the producers, I can't get the performers out of that person, they'd usually say, we'd better get someone else. On that note, we might wrap up our conversation. Okay. It's been very interesting. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, everybody. Well, I hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. There was a lot of information in there that I'm sure you found interesting, as I did. Tune in next time for my next podcast coming soon, which will be an interview with Sarah Stevenson from Black Cat Productions and Angel J from Cinematorium. Until then, have a great week, and I'll look forward to talking to you soon.